The word of God from Revelation. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you, Elizabeth. Would you please remain standing a while longer as we catch myself from falling, as we pray. Lord, uh, thank you uh, for this strange and mysterious book. Um, We do ask that you would grant to us your spirit to illumine it. And uh, teach us not to be hearers only, but doers of the word. Um, What you've called us to is hard. The scriptures are hard. And so we just pray for grace and mercy. Be patient with us as we try to sit under your word. Bless now the preaching of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. For uh, you Christ in the classics folks, um, I'm going to begin with Charles Dickens, his, uh, the way he opens his famous work, A Tale of Two Cities. You know these words. He writes, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was an age of wisdom. It was an age of foolishness. It was an epic of belief. It was an epic of incredulity. It was a season of light. It was a season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. I begin this way because these contrasts represent a tale of two other cities that take up the imagination of the whole second half 
of the book of Revelation. And, uh, and so I'm not talking here about, of course, England and France. I'm talking about Babylon and New Jerusalem. See, we've been studying the book of Revelation, and we've talked about how this book is actually given to strengthen the church, right? Not to scare it, but to strengthen it and to give it a profound hope so that we would have endurance in the face of either persecution or seduction. But it's not just two cities that we're going to see. It's also a comparison of these two what I'll call woman cities, or women slash cities. So on one hand, you have presented in the book of Revelation the harlot Babylon. And that is put in juxtaposition with the bride of Christ in the New Jerusalem. And there's going to be a lot of mixing of metaphors that goes on today. But this kind of in imagery actually plays on the ancient mythic ideal that the city was a place where human community lives in security and, and prosperity with the divine in its midst. That's how they understood it. Now, this image of a harlot or a prostitute, that's, that's clear enough. But Babylon? Babylon is also an image. So, you're, you know, your interpreters will regularly identify Rome, um, Babylon with Rome. But it's not just a stand-in for Rome. It's this sort of rich, biblical, theological symbol for the world's idolatrous, seductive, political economies. Uh, or the archetype of a godless city. And this great city, as it's called, has been depicted in John's Revelation as a place of antagonism and humiliation and even death for God's people. And so the ancient city of Babylon has like so many uh, uh, sort of associations that it would have really struck a dissonant chord in the original listeners. So if you remember in your Old Testament, Nebuchadnezzar, his army besieged the city of David in 588 BC, and they starved people and scattered the army and slaughtered the royal sons, smashed the walls, and set fire to the Lord's house and seized its riches and treasures. And the ruthless army left the land in ruins and took its sons and daughters into exile. There's even psalms that were written describing where people wept by the waters of Babylon and were forced to serve its evil tyrant. So, in this apocalyptic vision, John describes Rome and Roman cities with this language of Babylon. And the reason is, the reason this is so significant is that the people in the churches who first received John's vision would have found it really difficult to imagine a day when Rome and Roman cities would fall. So by describing it as Babylon, what this vision is trying to do is squeeze out any lingering love that listeners would have had for the world. Babylon the Great is this glitzy, proud, seductive, but empty place that seeks its own glory and opposes God and opposes God's people. And conversely, the holy city symbolizes a place where God's glorious presence dwell and where the people whom God brought into covenant relationship with himself can dwell. But here's the thing. The holy city at present exists only in hiddenness and in contradiction, and it's trampled and marginalized 
And it's the laughing stock in the eyes of the world. And John's readers, who would have had social status and affluence to participate in the public life of the city, would have found it very difficult to distance themselves from the public life of Rome. Namely, the, the idolatry and immorality that's bound up with it. Just a cursory reading of the initial seven letters to the seven churches. Y'all remember in Revelations chapter 2 and 3, there's those seven cities. Just a quick reading of those show that John's listeners were hesitant to do this. They, they prefer the comfortable life that benefits from the prosperity of these cities. They felt this need to suspend their primary sense of belonging to God and instead belong to the civic community with the rituals and the identity and civic pride that comes with it. And listen, listen, I know that each week we're like hearing these visions and uh, really up till today they've been grotesque. They've been like strongly worded. They're dark. But that's not what they look like from the readers, the listeners' vantage point, right? Because Rome promised peace and prosperity and security. And if you would just like keep Jesus hidden away, if you would just like, you know, put a top on your Christianity a little bit, right? Don't love it too much. Don't love Jesus too much. If you could just do that, then Roman cities look beautiful. It looked not at all like Babylon. But this revelation of John is doing us a favor by helping us to see things as they truly are. See, these spiritual realities are truer. They're truer than what our eyes can see. And this strange symbolic universe that John is, is seeing, right, is aimed, it's aimed at shaping our affections and our expectations that this world can never satisfy us as Christ can. And Babylon, though she is pretty, is really just a house of cards with no future. And the humble city, whose light flickers at present, will shine like the sun in the radiant presence of God. And if you can see that for what it truly is, then you would believe it too. And so this vision is trying to enchant us a little bit. And so the book of Revelation, it continues to have a lasting relevance for those of us who live in these amazing cities. Listen, like Denver is magical. Denver is compelling. And Jesus says, though we must live in the world, we must not be of the world. But Denver wants you to be of the world and to give yourself in worship to the benefits of the city or to be seduced completely away and eaten up by this city. And it has this is how come John, in his first letter, you know, the three little ones right at the end, right before Revelation, he says this. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. So how do we do it? <laughs> how do we listen to John's words? Well, this morning, we're going to see that coming out of this harlot city and into the bride's city, the new Jerusalem, it comes not from discipline, not from just trying harder, 
It's going to come from this explosion of worship, or this explosion of a chorus of hallelujah. And what draws out this chorus of hallelujah? Well, we're going to see two things in chapter 19. For you note takers, first we're going to see a praise for the final vindication over the harlot city. That's verses 1 through 4. And then we're going to see praise for this final union with the bride city, the new Jerusalem. And that's verses 5 through 10. So let's begin. Point one, praise for the final vindication. Now I know, because I know this audience, that you will remember that famous song by Hall and Oates, Man Eater. In the song, who is this powerful monster that eats men? Earning the name Maneater, it's a woman. Oh, here she comes. Watch out, boy, she'll chew you up. And then she warns, I wouldn't if I were you. I know what she can do. She's deadly, man. She could really rip your world apart. Mind over matter. In other words, spiritual world over the physical world. Oh, the beauty is there. But a beast is in the heart. Nothing like a good 80s song to help you understand the Bible. (laughs) So chapter 19 of Revelation, it's set up by these two chapters, 17 and 18. So in chapter 17, the city of the world, this great city, is depicted as this beautiful prostitute mounted on a beast. She's sipping the blood of Christians from this golden goblet. And if she weren't drinking blood, you would just think that she is stunning. But then in chapter 18, what we see is the destruction of the city. In a blink of an eye, judgment, like an atomic bomb, is detonated. Now, if you've seen the movie Oppenheimer, and just warning, it's really an adult movie, not appropriate for kids. But the plot of the, of the movie is moving us towards that moment in which the bomb is first detonated out in the deserts of uh, New Mexico. And when the button is pushed, right, you expect a big bang. But instead of a bang, the movie goes completely silent. So you're seeing with your eyes these incredible explosions, but what you hear is silence. And then only after the bomb has completed its destruction, only then the audience can finally hear the the peals of thunderous explosions. Well, in chapter 18, there's this weird literary silence after the judgment of Babylon. It says, in in chapter 18, it says, the sounds of the harpists and the musicians will be heard no more. The sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. The voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more. All of the seductive production of this great city is no more. And then the silence breaks in our passage, chapter 19. And the word hallelujah is what breaks the silence. Now, I know the word hallelujah is uh, very common in Christian parlance. Uh, You certainly see it written in numerous places in the Old Testament. But the word hallelujah is actually a Hebrew word, and it's a contraction of sorts. So hallel in Hebrew is to praise or praises. 
And then Yah is short for Yahweh, the Lord. And so hallelujah, praise to the Lord. That's what hallelujah means. And here's the thing, though. Your New Testament is actually written in Greek, not Hebrew. And so the Hebrew, it's transposed into the Greek. And it's only in chapter 19 that you see the word hallelujah in your whole New Testament. It's only here. But you see it four times. And really, there's a fifth because in verse 5, if you look, there it's not transposed. It's actually completely just translated in the Greek. It just says, praise our God. Right? So it's really five times in one chapter you see hallelujah. So after the detonation, there's a silence and then the explosion of hallelujah. Look at verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. So it breaks the silence. Voices of worship. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Verse 2. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of the saints. The great prostitute is the great city which takes on this euphemistic name Babylon. Right? Babylon is the man-eater. And she will never be able to seduce again or become drunk on the blood of Christians either by killing them or by seducing them away and spiritually killing them. And what provokes this praise is not so much just seeing the the destruction, it's the vindication that the saints feel for having died and sacrificed in service to the Lamb. I mean, think about it like like a high-profile court case where this evil man goes into a home and murders an entire family and all the children, but leaving only one child, you know, half dead. And the case goes on and on, and and this case takes on these sort of twists and turns, and uh, the surviving child begins to wonder if this bloodthirsty man is going to get let off scot-free, and he's just got this great defense lawyer. But then, at the end, the judge finally makes his verdict, his judgment. He says, guilty. And that powerless child feels vindicated for his family. See, chapter 19 finally answers the question that we studied back in chapter 6. Remember the seven seals? And we looked at the fifth seal. And the fifth seal describes the martyrs asking the question, how long Like, how long, O Lord, before you will judge and avenge our blood? And God said, not yet. Not yet. Remember that? But here, at the end of time, we are getting a peek at this final judgment and vindication. Do you remember, like in my very first sermon in chapter 1, I told you the story about how I conned my wife into watching that scary movie with me, right? So what, if you weren't here, what I did is I rented the movie, the scary movie, and then we watched the last scene first, right? And we didn't, we, we, we watched it last. And then so Amanda, knowing how the movie ends and how it all resolves, she's able to watch the scary movie with me. So knowing how it ends gives her endurance. That's what's happening here. The harlot city, the man-eater does not win. It's ultimately judged. 
and all of the sacrifices made to remain faithful to the Lord are vindicated. This is a vivid picture of what this world is like, and it warns what those who love the world too much can expect if they refuse to leave her. See, we live in Babylon. We shop in her supermarkets. We wear her clothes. We benefit from her privileges. This wild vision of spiritual reality of our world helps us. What it's doing is helping us to step back and get a little bit of perspective. So don't lose sight of where the story is going. Don't get comfortable inside the city of man. Keep your eyes on the new Jerusalem. All of the wounds, all of the way that this world injures you or puts you at a disadvantage because of your faithfulness to Christ, the price that you had to pay for being loyal to him, all of it, all of it will be completely vindicated. And so we say hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So chapter 19 erupts with praise at this final vindication of the saints with the fall of the harlot Babylon. But let's turn our attention now to the praise for the final union, this bride, New Jerusalem. Um, I don't know if y'all remember that story. It went viral during the COVID lockdown. It's a story of Anne and John Klein. And uh, the story begins with video footage of John. He's now 80 years old. And he's singing through this open screen window to his beloved bride, Anne, who's also 80 years old. And Anne and John have been married for almost 50 years. But for the last 17, Anne had been battling Alzheimer's. And so she's gotten to a place where um, it gotten so severe, she was in a nursing home receiving very special care. But John, of course, would visit her every single day. But, you know, with the COVID lockdown, the restrictions were even tighter because she was immunocompromised. Uh, he was not able to visit her. But, of course, the quarantine is no match for their love. And so each day, John would still go and visit his bride. But he would stand outside of her open window and sing to her. And he tells her that he loves her. He tells her that he plans to come back every single day. And in the interview, he says, you know, she still knows my voice. That's my John, he says. She says. And so he continues. He says, I plan to keep singing so that she doesn't forget it. And, and in the video, the camera catches this sort of special moment when you like, I'm such a softy. When you like hear him whisper to himself, I think you're beautiful. And then he just, then he departs and comes back. And despite their separation, and despite her amnesia or dementia, she still knows his voice. And it's no surprise that the story goes viral. It's a love story that grips our hearts and captures our imaginations, right? It's love like this it transcends shallow sentimentality, and it gives us a glimpse of what the scriptures call steadfast love, 
Or if you've ever read uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones, she refers to it as a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. It's the voice of a cosmic lover coming for his bride-to-be. And, 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 it, and, that's what it, and that's what elicits, you guys, in, in chapter 19, this praise, this explosion of praise at the end of time. So at this point, in verses 6 through 9, the focus turns to this other woman, and it's the bride of Christ. There is this second wave of voices, like peals of thunder and, and roaring waters, and it begins with what? Hallelujah. Look there in verse 7. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And then look there in verse 9. And the angel said to John, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, the Bible is bookended with two weddings. In the opening pages of Genesis, we see the first wedding of Adam and Eve. And then in Revelation 19, we get a glimpse of the final wedding between Christ and his bride. And in case we miss the connection, in Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul directly quotes from Genesis 2 saying, he says, that man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. And then he says... This mystery is profound, but what I'm saying is that it refers to Christ. And then so it should be no surprise that God is often depicted and described as this pursuing and persevering lover. In Isaiah 62, God himself, in his own words, calls his people his bride. Let me read. This is God speaking. This is in Isaiah 62. He says, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her. And your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom re rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. In the prophet Hosea, God is depicted as this yearning and heartbroken husband. In Zephaniah, he rejoices over his people with singing. And then in the New Testament, the focus sharpens in Jesus, right? His first public miracle was at a wedding feast where, of course, he's mistaken for the bridegroom for what he's doing there. You see, the scriptures tell the story of a bridegroom who loves his bride. Of a bridegroom who would go to hell and back to win his long lost bride. And he's always inviting her into a deeper experience of intimate communion with himself. He is the persevering lover who is always there ensuring us, ensuring that we remember his voice. And that we were made by his love and for his love. 
And this voice of the bridegroom not only beckons his bride, it not only summons her, but it beautifies her. Look at verse 8 there in your Bibles. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This is, this is the wedding dress. So back to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 when he writes, he says, that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? Do you remember why? He says, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her with the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself with splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, to make her a radiant bride. He intends to make us beautiful. The righteous deeds are the wedding dress. And this brings a far deeper significance to say yes to the dress, right? Okay, a few of you got it. The reason why we sing hallelujah is not just because there's a final vindication, but because there is this final union. What, is, what was a final marriage between God's people and himself. And so what was pictured in Isaiah 62, what's pictured in Ephesians 5, what's pictured in every marriage in this room is ultimately perfectly realized on the last day. This is when you and I come into final union and communion with him, never to be separated again never to feel a spiritual distance with him again, never to wonder if he loves you passionately and fervently. This eternal relationship is what it means to know the height and depth and breadth and length of the love of God in Jesus Christ to you and for you. And we will be invited to a wedding feast in which Christ serves as the host, but also Christ serves as the bridegroom, beautifully mixing the metaphors. And when we come into the banqueting hall, there will be this banner that is prominently displayed that says, I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. And on that day, family, when you see him face to face, you will say, hallelujah. And I know that these words like, seem fantastic and unbelievable. That's how come the angel actually says to John in verse 9, he says, these are true words of God. Listen to me. What I'm saying to you, these are true words of God. And out of blissful euphoria, you know, John was tempted to fall down in front of the angel and worship him. The angel's like, don't do that. Like, I'm a fellow servant with you. This is indeed this unbelievable and happy thought. Jonathan Edwards, the great 19th century theologian, he says, the ultimate end of creation was for God to provide a spouse for his son, Jesus Christ, that she might enjoy him and on whom he might pour forth his love. Heaven and earth were created in order that the Son of God might communicate his love to his spouse. 
and bring that bride into the very family life of the Trinity. And so the bridegroom gives his bride-to-be a wedding dress, which speaks to the righteousness that Christ gives to us from himself and his righteousness. But however splendid the dress is, even that is not the point. The great Scottish Presbyterian, the old diviner from Westminster, Samuel Rutherford, he says this. I love it, these old guys, man. They say this. He says, our love to him should begin on earth as it shall be in heaven. For the bride takes not by a thousand degrees so much delight in her wedding garment as she does in her bridegroom. So we, in this life to come, albeit clothed with glory as with a robe, shall not be so much affected with the glory that goes about us as with the bridegroom's joyful face and presence. Who says old Presbyterians don't know poetry? What this means is that on the final day, on the wedding day, when the church is presented to Christ, to himself is beautiful and pure. What this means is that you're not going to be looking at your clothes. You're, you're not going to be like looking around at the environment of heaven and, or, or staring at the golden streets. You're not going to be looking for grandma or grandpa or mom or dad or even your children. You're going to be looking at the bridegroom, Jesus. You're not going to take your eyes off of him. And on that day, you will say, Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. He is all the glory of that place and all the glory of the land. And that is what your soul longs for, even if you don't quite understand it now. Okay. Let me conclude. I, almost like one little smaller point. Please just let me finish here. So... The second half of the book of Revelation, right? It's putting these two women in juxtaposition. It puts these two cities in juxtaposition. And, and really, we're going to look at the city more next week. But the whole point of describing Babylon in such sort of sobering terms and describing the bride and the New Jerusalem in such beautiful terms, the whole point of it is to encourage us as we wait for the wedding feast of the Lamb, right? To encourage us to come out of Babylon, to resist Babylon, now, to come out of Babylon does not require God's people to relocate physically or to seclude themselves from the world, but it does require, it does require that we take refuge in the living God where we reside. And where our eyes might deceive us, the apocalypse of John, the revelation of John will help us to grow in wisdom and our ability to see the spiritual true reality of things so that we're better able to see what will last, where true security is, and what's passing away. And so our faith ought to demonstrate that we don't expect this world to ever satisfy us like Christ ultimately satisfies us. You guys know, uh, this is like Song Sunday. You know that famous song by Jeff Buckley, Hallelujah? Y'all know that song? So the song is like filled with allusions to like King David and these kind of a uh, mixture of other stories in the Old Testament. This is what he sings. 
He says, I heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift. The baffled king, the baffled king composing, hallelujah. So it's not the holy king that he's singing. It's not the perfect king. It's the baffled king who sings, hallelujah. And then the song continues. He says, you saw her bathing on the roof, her beauty and the moonlight overthrew you. She tied you to the kitchen chair. She broke your throne. She cut your hair. And from your lips, she drew a hallelujah. And you know, those lyrics have always like puzzled me. Like, what does that mean? Until this week, until I paid attention to the third verse. And I read these two lines. He says, love is not a victory march. It's a cold and a broken hallelujah. Our song of hallelujah in this life is beaten and battered. And it's not always sung with the same joy that we ought to sing as we will sing on that final day. But it is still a hallelujah. And often we don't feel it. I know we don't feel it. But God, by his sheer mercy, he even puts those words on our lips. Like we, even in our brokenness, will say a beaten and battered hallelujah. How? How? And here's how. And I'll end the sermon the way I began it, finishing with Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. If you haven't read the story, there are really these two principal characters. One's Sidney Carton and the other's Charles Darnay. And these two men were rivals but they look very similar to one another, like doppelgangers of sorts. And these two men love the same woman, but she ends up marrying Charles. And at the very end of the book, Charles is arrested and put into a dungeon. He's supposed to be executed by the guillotine the very next day. And when he dies, he will leave behind a wife and a child. Because Sidney looks so much like him, Sidney sneaks into the prison knocks Charles out, has his friends take him out to safety, and then he puts on Charles' clothes, and he stays there to die in his place. And in that same dungeon, there's this other prisoner. It's this young female seamstress who's also on her way to the guillotine. And she walks up to the man that she thinks is Charles and asks him to comfort her until she realizes that it's not him. And so her eyes get really big, and she whispers. She says, are you dying for him? And hushing her, he says, and for his wife and child too. And then having asked him earlier to comfort her, she begs again. She says, oh, will you let me hold your brave hand, stranger? And she's like warmed in that moment against the chill of the dungeon even, she's given even courage in the face of her own death by the mere idea of his substitutionary death. Isn't that something? The idea of Christ's substitutionary death can put on your mouth, hallelujah, and it can give you all the courage to live this life valiantly, even dying to self. And to hold his hand and to wait patiently for the banquet feast of the Lamb. May we stay faithful. Amen. Amen.